When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. This could go on forever. What should I do? I could shave. I can clip my nails. Nah. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESP. All right, Judd, I have mentioned a couple of times with you and Phil that I have an offensive line guy. Yes. I've referenced my offensive line guy, and I've said, look, my offensive line guy says yada, yada, yada. So last year, before... The draft, I said, hey, my offensive line guy says watch out for Pat Elfline. And you wrote that, I believe, and quoted your offensive line guy in I that did, case. yes. So I wanted to, now that we have a chance to talk a little Vikings, bring my offensive line guy on so he's no longer a mystery. He is real. Brandon Thorne, who works for the Scouting Academy, also writes about offensive and defensive line technique a lot for USA football. Really detailed stuff. One of my favorite guys. Brandon, how are you? I'm doing good, Matt. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. So Brandon is one of the most detailed writers, authors, speakers that I know when it comes to offensive and defensive line. It's an incredibly technical position, and I learn a lot every time I talk with him. So, Brandon, let's start with where the Vikings are right now and how it looks their offensive line is going to shape up with Mike Remmers playing guard and Rashad Hill playing right tackle uh, from what you've watched of those two at those positions, which is really only one game a week 17 last year, what do you think of that combination and how it might fit if they play together for 16 games? You know, I uh, just watched that week 17 matchup today um, again, and, you know, I'm I'm a little bit higher on Remmers than Hill. Um, you know, I've always kind of liked Remmers for what he could do in the run game, uh, primarily a right tackle thought he was a you know a good run blocker and I saw a lot of those same things in that week 17 matchup you know granted he was going against Akeem Hicks who's one of the best interior defensive linemen in the NFL so um, he definitely beat Remmers uh, a couple times um, pretty cleanly in that game but Remmers also had some very nice blocks on him so if you could trade blows and come to stalemates as much as he did with Hicks you know playing a foreign position like he did it's pretty encouraging to me. I think I think he's a you know going to be a good run blocker in there. Um, pass protection is another story. Um, I, I'd say you know solid at best, but um, maybe a little bit closer to the below average side of things. Um, and that could be just because you know he's playing a new position as well in that Week 17 game. But his pass set um, didn't really look very uh, fluid um or natural uh he you know immediately coming out of his stance he basically just reset his feet and just kind of stood there and waited and you know i would imagine he's working on that you know trying to you know uh, work on his set points and things like that you know from the right guard position which you know is a lot different from tackle obviously so i would expect a little bit of improvement there but 
you know, I think he'll be a similar player that he's been, you know, you know, the last four or five years of his career, which is a good run blocker and maybe a solid pass protector at best. Um, and then, you know, Rashad Hill, um, you know, I have my, I have more concerns about him, you know, but granted the thing about him is, you know, he's entering his third year. Um, he only has seven starts to his name. So, you know, definitely an inexperienced guy with room to grow. I do like some of the things that you see on film with him just you know his his size um i like the way he uses his hands i think he has pretty good hand placement you know solid hand placement um good ability to reset his hands and kind of generate leverage and pass protection but i think he plays really high i think he has high pad level and i think he's pretty stiff you know he doesn't handle inside counters very well at all um and he doesn't redirect you know very smoothly laterally um so i think you know, uh, facing a really good pass rushers is going to be an issue without, you know, significant help to his side, at least initially. So, you know, but in the run game, I think he's a pretty good run blocker, pretty good uh, play strength from what I saw. Um, but again, you know, I think he just doesn't play with that creative leverage. So um, I have a little bit more concerns with him than runners. All this being said, uh, the Vikings first round pick uh, came around and we all we all thought okay late first round pick but look at all, all these guards right there were all these guards left and they're going to solidify the line and take a right guard and Mike can stay at right tackle um how much Brennan do you think now the the Vikings are going to regret the fact that they didn't address that uh, guard need in in the first round and basically now are trying to uh, piecemeal things together by taking the right tackle and and switching him to right guard when this would have been something that would have been very simple to address in the draft? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I did really love this draft for the interior line play, and I thought that they could have got a guy, um, certainly with that first pick, you know, that could have been probably better than both the guards on the roster. Um, but at the same time, you know, I understand, uh, you know, well, just operating from, you know, where they are now, you know, with Remmers, Easton, and Isadora, you know, sort of as that, you know, that three-man um, competition for two spots, you know, I'm not terribly discouraged, I guess, by that uh, trio. I, I don't think you're going to get like a star or even anybody who's very good out of those three, but I do think that you're going to get a guy – um, you know, maybe two guys who are solid. And if you look across the landscape of the NFL at, at the guard play, just in general, if you can have two solid starters who, you know, may not be very good against the very good in the league competition, but at the same time are two guys you could probably win with. Um, I don't think that that is, you know, terrible, but I definitely think they could have done better, like you said, in the draft. However, you know, drafting Brian O'Neill, you know, and a guy like that to kind of develop at the tackle position, I kind of am intrigued by that guy. And, um, you know, and I think Rashad Hill, like I said, given how inexperienced he is, um, you know, he could provide kind of a stopgap, you know, at least this year. You would imagine and I would hope that he would probably be better this year than he has been, you know, in his first two years of his career where he barely played. So, you know, at the same time, you know, while I agree with that they could have gotten better at guard in the draft from where they're standing now, I don't think that they're in a terrible position given the landscape of offensive line play in the NFL. 
Brandon Thorne joining us here, Matthew Collar and for Phil Mackey today, along with, of course, Judd Zolgad. Brandon works for the Scouting Academy, also for USA Football, covering offensive and defensive line. So tell us more about Brian O'Neill and why he might not be ready to start now. Because I think that what they were looking for is a guy who could compete for a starting job. But what I've seen of Brian O'Neill and just his shape at this moment he doesn't look anything like Riley Reef looks or Mike Remmers looks or, or, or Rashad Hill in, in terms of his size. It's a guy that transitioned from being a tight end. So what might he have to work on or prove to get his name in that competition? Well, I think you just you hit you hit on it right there, you know, starting with his size, you know, converted tight end, the guy who's still um pretty new to the position and uh just underdeveloped physically. You know, he needs to add some size, strength. Um, and, you know, given a year um, in the Vikings, you know, program, I think that that would definitely, uh, a year on the bench, that is, uh, I think that would go a long way to helping him and, you know, for the, you know, the long-term outlook of his career just to develop, you know, physically. But, you know, and then naturally when you're kind of underdeveloped like that, you know, it translates to the field and his play strength, um, specifically his anchor and pass protection, his ability to really hunker down and, kind of, you know, stop or even slow down power rushers, um, I, you know, that that was really lacking in college. And, um, you know, I think that that would just be exacerbated in the NFL and it could really lead to, um, you know, uh, maybe, you know, his confidence being kind of wrecked early on. But, you know, you know in practice, he's going to be going against, um, obviously, great competition. Um, you know, getting the chance to block guys like Everson Griffin, who you know is probably a top three speed to power rusher in the NFL. I think that all that type of stuff, you know, should help him and kind of give him an idea of what he needs to do to get ready. Um, and I think it's really get stronger, get you know, add some weight, but also refine his technique and pass protection. Um, so you know, I think that. You know, I, I do like him, though, you know, to kind of talk about his strengths, you know, his athleticism and play speed. You know, we touched on that, Matt, earlier um, prior to him getting drafted, after he got drafted. Um, you know, he's a phenomenal athlete, and it translates not just, you know, what he did at the combine. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about when you watch the film, his play speed, the, what he does in space, what he could do on screens, space blocking into the second and third levels. And not only how fast he gets there, but how accurately and, you know, how well he targets people in space. You know, those type of things are pretty rare. So, you know, I do like um, some of the things that he could do positively. And, you know, I think that that's a good place to build from. But I just don't see him being ready right now. And uh, I think Rashad Hill, at least initially, would probably be a better option than him. So as camp gets set to start, do you uh, do you gauge this this Vikings line versus the line that started last year to be about the same, better or worse, Brandon? Um, I'd probably say it's a, a little worse, um, just because you know. I mean, I liked uh, Berger at right guard, you know, last year. I mean, I thought he was a solid player. You know, obviously a lot of experience, and then having Remmers at right tackle, I think you're probably better at both those spots. Um, left guard, I think you went into the last season well, with Alex Boone at left guard, and then, you know, it, it wound up, um, you know, kind of changing there to Easton. Um, I, I like Easton, especially for what Minnesota did last year, assuming that they're going to do something similar, you know, more of a predominant, predominantly more of a, a zone-blocking offensive line 
where they like guys who can get out in space, who are athletic. Um, you know, I think Easton fits that bill. Um, you know, definitely not the strongest guy or most physically imposing guy, but I do like what he can do, you know, in the zone run game. So maybe a little bit better at left guard going in, but I think a little bit worse at right guard and right tackle. So, Brandon, last year before the draft, you loved Pat Elfline. Then when they selected him, you pointed out a bunch of stuff to me on film that he did really impressively at Ohio State that ended up carrying over for a great rookie season. And I think Vikings fans feel, you know, it's funny. I was telling Brandon this off the air that Vikings fans really like offensive line, especially center. Like this team has had so many great centers in its history. What was it that you liked about him coming out that you saw in year one that might point to him being a longtime player here at center? Yeah. Well, what I liked of him coming out was how technically sound he was. Um, and that's, you know, really a testament to Ohio State and the center, the great center tradition that they have, um, you know, with Billy Price and with Charles Bentley and guys like that. I think they've won the Remington Award in the last few years in a row. It's come out of that school. Um, and you could just see how well coached he was and how it you know, translated to the field. Um, you start with uh, how great of leverage he played with, you know, obviously a high level wrestling background. I think some of that translated to the field, how well he used his hands to gain leverage on guys, to sustain blocks, to steer blocks, control guys. Um, very physical and aggressive. I thought he was really strong. Um, and at the same time, you know, he played center and guard, had a ton of starts, a lot of experience. You could see him pulling, getting out into space in college. Um, you know, I saw pretty much everything that you want to see from the center prospect, you know, on his film. And I I think we saw all of that in year one, and it helped that he went to such a great scheme fit for him, you know, where they took advantage of some of those things that he could do in space. Um, so, yeah, I think he's just, you know, I thought that, you know, when he was coming out, he's a guy you plug in the center and you leave there for 10 years and you were comfortable with it. And uh, I, I still feel the same way, and I'm just glad he's in Minnesota because it's a great fit. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Brandon. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care. Brandon Thorne uh, does uh, great stuff on, as you said, offensive line play, Matthew, Scouting Academy, and USA Football. So you can follow Brandon's work. He tweets out a lot of stuff. I learn things from him every day. At Veteran Scout, he was in the Air Force. So it's like, you know, veteran, not veteran as in been veteran around a while. Sky, veteran, veteran is an actual, veteran, veteran, sure. yes, military veteran. Uh, let's let's do this. Let's come back and talk about a couple things he said about the O-line because I think he's probably spot on, and I think that's probably not a good thing. Mackie and Judd are back after this brief timeout. Coffee break. Better hurry if we want to get a seat. On 1500 ESPN. Mackie and Judd are back. Please, continue. On 1500 ESPN. Thank you, David. Jason Stark of The Athletic will make his weekly appearance uh, right around the corner around 1130 or so. Uh, Matthew, let's go back to what uh, your offensive line guy, Brandon Thorne, just told us. Because I think he's... Probably spot on. I think the Vikings offensive line is going to start 2018 slightly worse. Not a lot, but slightly worse than they were in 2017. And I think I think a main talking point early in the season very well might be this. Why did they not address right guard in the first round? Why did you... I, it feels like they almost got cute and felt like, well, Rashad Hill is developing. Remmers can be moved to right guard. Uh, instead of saying, you know what, we're sitting in a position where there was a, a list at the time, right? A list of potential guards there, interior offensive linemen. 
it just feels like, in a very Viking way, this is going to bite them right in the butt. Yeah, I think what we'll be doing is looking at this draft over and over and over again throughout the season, and we'll be watching closely some of the other players that went off the board. And if Mike Hughes isn't a contributor this year, and the offensive line kind of falls apart, we will definitely go back and say, why not Will Hernandez? Will Hernandez was right there, and he was this big, giant, mean, nasty guard who ran a fast 40 and was quick and could have adjusted his scheme a little bit because he had the athleticism to do so, and he just was a Viking guy. I mean, he, you look at him and you say, yeah, that's somebody who would fit in with, with this team and what they want to do. And now, you know, I watched Week 17 back myself, and I saw some of the same things Brandon was talking about. Of course, he helps with the details, uh, but, you know, the Remmers blocking it right guard for the pass protection is not perfect. And, you know, Rashad Hill has some shortcomings where you love him as a guy who can fill in for five games. There aren't that many guys who can fill in for five games competently a tackle. And having one is great. But now you don't really have a starter who you're sure about for 16 games where you would have been for Remmers at right tackle. And for guards, I think guard is a position where a rookie can come in and make an immediate impact. We talked about rookie tackle is tough. Rookie center is tough. Rookie guard is doable. Mm -hmm. And not drafting one, if that is what takes this season sideways at all, we will always go back to that. And I think the other important thing to bring up here then is is ultimately the most important thing, which is the performance of your $80-plus million quarterback, Kirk Cousins. And the difference, if you got, if you give Keenum credit for one thing, it's improvising, right? Case yes. Keenum, yes. Case Keenum could take a a play that was breaking down, not lose his cool, and make a play. And Kirk, he, and he was Cus- patient too. Yeah. He could be patient at times, even when he got, uh, even when he got protection, he could be patient. But as far as improvising, Kirk Cousins is not the same guy. No. And so what you've essentially done is. You have you have taken your line. Let's say it started last year as because uh, it wasn't great. It was it was good though. Let's say it started last year as a seven or a six, and now let's say it's a five or four. And you're putting a quarterback who you're paying a ton of money to back there, who's not necessarily going to be as good at improvising as the guy he's replacing. Yeah, and and, and I think that becomes the key to the conversation. Another problem with Kirk Cousins is that he has trouble sensing pressure the same way that Keenum did. Where Keenum, and this would go for Teddy Bridgewater too, was really good at it, and Bradford, and how all three dealt with it was different. So with Bridgewater, he was very good at improvising. He was very good at having a pocket presence, moving his feet a couple of of yards this way or that way to find himself a throwing lane, or he could take off. Keenum could also take off, and Keenum was good at that too. Keenum was good at just creating some more space for himself to find a throwing lane. Bradford was good at finding the quickest possible place to get rid of the ball, which sometimes frustrated us, but the line was terrible, and he somehow didn't get murdered because he knew his exact read if X, Y, or Z happened. He processed really fast. With Cousins, he doesn't do those things as well as any of those guys. So what you see on tape is guys will get uh, beat off the edge, and he'll be holding onto the ball, looking for his read, looking for his read, and then it's a strip sack. Most fumbles of any quarterback in the league over the last three years. I bring that up. It's important. And then Zimmer goes because, crazy. Because it, it's important when you're talking about the offensive line. Yeah. Because if he's sitting in the pocket, and I saw some of this in minicamp, and he's waiting and he's waiting, and he, and he wants to wait till the very last second, there's some of his throws that are so spectacular where he waits till the very last second and then makes a great throw. So you'll see that. 
But the downside is sometimes he gets strip sacked and sometimes he waits too long. And if you have some question marks on the line, and Riley Reef is not exactly Orlando Pace either. So if you've got some problems off the edge and you're facing good pass rushes like the Rams have Indomitian Sue now and the Eagles, and you're going to go against New Orleans, who drafted a guy in the first round to go along with Cam Jordan, who's good already, is this could be an issue for them. And remind us, too, that that um, that Kirk Cousins in Washington there for a while had an outstanding offensive line. 2016, he, he had, had a great offensive line it was that season. an A-plus. Like, Trent Williams is... So that's going to cover up tackle. some of his flaws yeah. and make him look good because th- those guys were so good. And Ryan Schreff is really good, too. I think he was a fourth overall pick, and he's a guard. So the, it was great, and then it got hurt last year. Almost everybody across their line got hurt, and he led the league in sacks against. And and, and that kind of tells you the Kirk Cousins story. When he has the things in place, he can be really, really good. And when things start to go awry... That's where his play is going to drop. That's the same for almost everybody, but I think that the difference between when he's at his best, when everything's working, Mm -hmm. and when things fall apart, I think that gap is big. Jason Starka joins us next for his weekly visit to Talk Baseball. Mackie and Judd with uh, Matthew Collar and for Philip today. Don't go anywhere. More Mackie and Judd coming up next. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves. On 1500 ESPN. Phil Mackey. It's the worst thing I do at ESPN. Judd Zolgad. I just want to drink and watch TV. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Mackey and Judd are talking twins. Now, now, with MLB Network contributor and senior baseball writer with The Athletic, Jason Stark. Brought to you by Grundhofer's Old Fashioned Meats. Bring the excitement of Grundhofer's to your next cookout. TCL Castillo, Mackie and Joe today is uh, Zolget and Matthew Collar. And uh, as you just heard, they're now joined by our buddy Jason Stark. Jason, start you off with this one. Among the among the list of players who have a gripe about not being selected to this year's All-Star Game, where does Eddie Rosario fit in there? Uh, he's definitely on the list. <laughs> I, I, I'm still a little bit in shock that Jose Barrios became the Twins' only All-Star. <laughs> Join the club, but yep. uh, you know they just the American League roster construction is such a mess because once the fans vote and the players vote, there's almost no wiggle room. Yep, and that I think that's what happened here. Um, I, I think Eddie would rank behind Blake Snell <laughs> and uh, Jesus Aguilar. Right, if you lead the league in ERA and you lead the league in homers, yeah. you probably should be in the All Star game. Yeah, probably. Okay, so so I'm going to run something by you that drives me crazy, and and you've covered this sport for so long, you, you can tell me if I'm on the right track or not. I covered football, all right, and I can tell you right now, the last people, the last group of people in this world who should vote for All Star and Pro Bowl and things like that is players. Players pay attention to themselves. And they pay attention to their upcoming opponent, but they don't like really watch the games and the and the league, or a lot of them don't. So, so why when we tweaked this system, Jason, didn't we say fan vote stays? I don't like it personally, but I get it, so that's fine. Fan vote stays. Commissioner's office picks the rest of the team. Why do we feel the need to empower players? Um. <laughs> well, the players want a voice. I'm fine with giving them some voice, mm-hmm. but this system is not real 
efficient or functional. The fans did fine. The fans did really well. This time they did, yeah. Transitioning the fan voting to online voting has made for a very educated fan voting base. Fans have really gotten it right since that happened. Uh, when you know when you don't have um, seven year olds punching out holes at the ballpark, nothing against seven year olds <laughs> at the ballpark. Um, you, you you get good results from the fan voting, and yet the player voting has to change. And if you followed at all the Twitter exchange between Chris Archer and Justin Verlander on Sunday night, you know that even players think it's a change. Mm-hmm. I heard from a recently retired ex-player Sunday night, because I'd been tweeting about the teams and what I thought was the problem, and he texted me to say that there are two big issues with the player voting. The first is they just vote too soon. They should vote much closer to the game. You saw Verlander say everybody should take out their iPads two days before they announce the teams and vote then. That'd make a lot more sense than voting in the third week of June. Yes. And then the other part of it is as you just said, there are just too many players who don't put in the time, don't put in the work, don't pay attention, don't take it seriously, and you get results like we've seen. And his idea was every player rep on each team would appoint 10 players in the room to vote and represent their team. And by being appointed, it would be the player rep's way of saying, You've got to take it seriously. You've got to do this right. You've got to represent the players so that we get it right. And I I don't know how you feel about that idea, but something like that seems like it would be helpful. I like it more. Messed it up. It's better. It's, it's better. This reminds me a lot of the NFL Top 100 countdown where I was in the locker room and one I looked over a player's shoulder and saw him writing down all of his teammates. So he had his teammate number one, his teammate number two. So one <laughs> through 22 was all of his teammates, the starters. Um, uh, so Jason, Judd and I were uh, doing lists earlier of some of the most bizarre players who made all-star teams, whether it was just a pop-up year or Judd hated a veteran player that didn't belong there. Uh, my favorite was Kosuke Fukudome starting in center field in 2008. Do you <laughs> do you have one? Because he hit 257 on the year with 10 homers. Um, do, do you have one that stands out to you that is maybe the, the strangest or the most random all-star selection slash starter that kind of makes you chuckle? Uh well, thanks for asking, Matthew. That's, this is the kind of thing that I keep track of. Uh, so, <laughs> you really? Hard to believe, isn't it? What's yeah, wrong with me? I'm shocked. <laughs> um, you know, start with Mike Williams. You know, Mike yes. uh, I covered in Philly, and he's a he's a wonderful guy. He had his moments. The year he made the All Star team with the Pirates because the Pirates had to have an All Star, and I think it was 2003. Yes, I know he had the worst ERA of any All Star in history. It was over six, and we gotta have a rule that no <laughs> nobody with a six ERA can ever take play, part in an All Star game. Okay, let's do that. Um, I, I I did some research once on. Position players with the worst career batting averages who made an all-star team. And like, they're all backup catchers, but you know, Steve Swisher was a lifetime 216 hitter. 216 with a 279 career on base. And one year in the mid-70s, 
he was the Cubs only all-star because the, every team had to be represented. So Steve Swisher, Mr. 216, come on down and feel the love, feel the all-star love. Oh. And then this is a slightly different category, but, um, in the nineties, I believe this was 1992. The Phillies were the worst team in baseball. And I was on this West coast trip with them. And, we were, this trip ended in San Diego, and the All Star Game was in San Diego that year. So, um, John Cruck made the team. Darren Dalton both made the team. Two Phillies on the worst team in baseball uh, make the All Star team. And the next day, they on Monday they show up to the park for All Star Monday workout day and open their equipment bags. And there are no uniforms because the <laughs> that Phillies packed up their uniforms on Sunday and flew them back to Philadelphia. Oh, no. So they weren't sure what exactly they were supposed to do because you're supposed to run around the field wearing your uniform, right? <laughs> so they sent the clubhouse kid up to the concession stand, and the, or the, it wasn't the concession stand, it was the, uh, the team store thinking, well, they bound to sell uh, a jersey of every team, right? And they could just buy a couple of generic jerseys of the Phillies and wear them. Nope. They said they don't carry any Phillies jerseys because nobody would ever buy one. So, Crook, I remember, worked out that day wearing Leo Mazzoni's uniform because he and Leo were West Virginians. And Crook just wore like a T-shirt because he was Darren. I'm sorry, Dalton just wore a T-shirt because sure. he was Darren Dalton. Sure. My my top one, Jason, yeah. Mark Redman, 2006, 62-100, KC Royals. Ooh. He made the All-Star team as the Royals rep with a 527 ERA and had walked nearly more guys than he had struck out. <laughs> and he was the representative, the former twin. I, I had another one that one. really was great for me. It was Terry Mulholland starting the 93 All-Star game and then going to the Yankees the next year and having a 6.5 ERA. <laughs> well, Terry Mahalo was actually him. good in 93. He wasn't that good in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we could do this all day long. And, I, you know, I think it kind of gets back to that rule that every team must have an all-star. And I took a lot of abuse on Twitter the other day for suggesting that rule's antiquated and it's time to have it disappear. And that that... that that abuse continues. Why? Why? No, no, you're a thousand percent right. Now, now, that does not mean that that you don't re- represent a bad team if it, they have a guy who's had a great first half, Jason. But I don't understand this. Why? It doesn't. At least for for me, I don't sit down and watch the All Star game because there might be a twin there. Well, I so, guess there are. Some I'm with you on this. Do. I've heard from every single one of them. <laughs> but I, like, I just can't imagine. You know, little little. Little Johnny in Detroit telling his mom, I can't go to bed. I need to see if Joe Jimenez pitches the <laughs> I guess that happens. I don't know. No, I don't think it does. I think these people are all wrong, and I think you're right. And I think you've been right for a long time now. It drives yeah. me crazy. It, it, the, the game would be – look, you're never going to get it perfect. And now that the game's just an exhibition and it doesn't quote-unquote count anymore, it really doesn't matter much. But I could come up with so many more fun ways to fill out an all-star team than that. Mm -hmm. Like, I've proposed this for years. Every roster should have a living legend spot and a rising star spot. So Ichiro and Juan Soto 
should be in the game. They should be on the all-star teams. That would be so much more fun <clears throat> and so much more interesting than, I hate to pick on poor Joe Jimenez, but Go right Joe ahead. Jimenez. Yes. Yeah, right? and, 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 then, and then if you do that, an aging player can be in the, the game without it feeling like a, a potential fraud. Because you're trying right. to shoehorn no, him on the roster. Some, there yes. might be some instances where, uh, you know, a guy in each of a situation who had kind of quasi-retired or whatever the heck he did wouldn't feel comfortable playing. But I would create an actual roster spot to where if he wanted to, mm-hmm. you let him play. Let him hit. Go ahead. Go for sure. it. Why not? I would love that. Each year wants to bat in the All-Star game, play in the home run derby. You can do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. He is a legend. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, so t- talk to us about your, your stadium TV show that is going to debut. I believe it is at uh, 6 o'clock here tonight, watchstadium.com. You sat down with John Smoltz. I would take it that you got some pretty good stories about Game 7 of the 1991 World Series at the Metrodome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, 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 John has a lot of stories. But, that you know, he's the only pitcher in the history of the World Series to throw scoreless baseball that deep into a game seven and not win it. And so thanks to Jack Morris, he, <laughs> you know, he goes down in history as quote unquote, the other pitcher in that game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the yes. guy that nobody remembers yep. also put up zeros into the eighth inning. And he, it, you know, it was really, uh, uh, was fun to hear him talk about, even though you could see the pain in his face, Bobby Cox coming to the mound, in the eighth inning, and him realizing he didn't have the clout to talk him out of taking him out of the game. And as we know, Jack Morris had that experience where Tom Kelly went to the mound, and Jack basically said, get the hell off my mound. Right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not coming out. It it still eats at John Smoltz all these years later that he had to come out of that game, and you know, like you could see the fire in his eyes. It's he, he's the only guy I, I looked at. The, I actually looked this up, guys. The only guy who has ever pitched a game seven and broadcast a game seven of the World Series. Pretty cool, huh? That's very cool. So, is that in in your mind? Is that the greatest games seven of all time? I actually think the Cubs-Indians now is the greatest Game 7 of all time. But um, I was at the Morris game. I was at the Cubs-Indians game. And I was at the uh, Luis Gonzalez-Mariano Rivera game in Arizona in 01. And I get chills thinking about all three of them. You know, I don't really know how you separate any of them. But just the, you know, the, the, the feeling in the building the atmosphere in the stadium from first pitch to last pitch, all three of those games. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And it was so loud in the Metrodome that night. <laughs> uh, and uh, Jack Marsh actually talks about that and how, you know, what he had to do to kind of shut that out. It was cool. Dave, fire up the music. Jason, it's trivia time for Matthew Collar and myself. Yeah, it is. Hope you guys are ready. I, this one was is. inspired, guys. Oh, Eddie, let's play the music. Hold on. It's going. Yeah, it's going. Music. We're it good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Fire away. Okay. Yep. I, I, I still feel like I need a podium. 
and a little pointer. You know what? We'll send you one. How about that? We'll buy you one and we'll we'll ship it out to you. We, we can live stream you yep. doing the motions for people on Facebook yeah. Live or something. <laughs> we can do this a lot of different ways. Here, here's your question. This one was inspired by Mookie Betts. Mookie hit his 100th home run the other day, and he is still 25 years old. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many twins have hit 100 home runs yep. before they celebrated their 26th birthday. There's only one. Only one. See if you can guess. Before the age of 26, um, oh boy, I, 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 I can't ask the question I, I want to ask because it'd be cheating by too much. Um, no, no. I mean, my question is: Would that twin have had to start his uh, his career in Minnesota when he could have started it in Washington? But that's probably not fair to ask that question. Uh, Dave, thoughts? Do, do you care to chime in as well? The only twin before the, the age of twenty six. That's funny. Now you want me to well, chime in when you don't well, know the answer? From, that's interesting. Collars from Buffalo. No, no. I think okay. I, I think I might know. So, I think I might know, but I'm not. Positive. I've got ideas, but I'm not going to help you out here. Oh, come All on, right. Harry. No, hang yourself. I'll take a I'll take a swing at Justin Morneau. Nah, you don't. Didn't come up. Early I don't enough? think. I don't think. I think that's. Uh, duh, 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 duh. Um, is that, is that wrong, Jason? Justin Morneau is close, but it's, it's not correct. Oh, who else? Justin Morneau signed my ticket at a Rochester Red Wings game when I was a teenager. Um, Justin Morneau would hit eighty-eight. Oh, was a great guess. So that's a good guess. That's a good, that's solid then, yeah. Uh, making fun of me? I didn't make fun Judd. of you. All right, I'm going to I'm gonna go, I will not go kill a brew, although that that is, seems likely to me. I, you know what? I'm going to go Tom Bernanski. Way to go, Judd. All right. Did I get it? Correct. Tom Bernanski hit 127. <laughs> And and never forget, Jason Stark, as you know very well, then in April of 1988, they traded him for Tommy Herr, who would have rather been traded to Mars than Minnesota. <laughs> that'd be that'd be correct. And um, Mars was not interested, if I remember right, so that, it, he, he didn't have that option. <laughs> that yes, now, you're right. Yeah, and this one was tricky for me because Harmon Killebrew did hit more than 100 home runs before he turned. 26, but they obviously weren't all as a twin because some of them were in Washington. Absolutely. So I, I would have, if, if you had actually guessed Killebrew, I would have given you credit for that one with an asterisk. It seemed too obvious. And you brought up, I was, I didn't remember how prolific uh, Brunanski was power wise until you brought him up in a trivia question about three weeks ago. And it also right. had to do with age. So I thought that he, he might be the choice. Yeah, the other guy who was really close was. Your good friend and ours, Kent Herbeck, with mm. 93. Mm, okay. All right. All right, Jason Stark. Thank you. Talk to you next Tuesday. Yeah, it was great fun. See it ya. was fun. All right. Bye-bye. Jason Stark, always a great conversation. Check out his work at The Athletic, theathletic.com. Also, uh, as I mentioned, uh, does uh, work for Stadium TV. Watchstadium.com. Six o'clock tonight, John Smoltz joins him for a conversation that will include, I'm sure, plenty on Game 7, as he said, of the 91 World Series. Back after this on Mackey and Judd. Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. There's a touch of madness around here. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Do you have hot sports takes? Aren't afraid to share your opinions on the local clubs? Do you want your own show? Right here on 1500 ESPN. If you answered yes, well, then 1500 ESPN's Sportscaster Idol 
is for you. We are holding a competition to find our next host here with the winner receiving their own show for a year. Start working on your audition entries. We'll start being accepted next Monday, the 16th of July. More details on the website, 1500ESPN.com. So Jason Stark, Matthew Collar, is exactly right. I don't understand why we still feel the need, the old school need in baseball, to have every team have a player on the All-Star team to uh, represent them. When, shouldn't we have learned 25 years ago, you know what? There's going to be one or two teams you just don't need a player from. I don't. And I don't care if those markets care. Yeah, I don't understand don't the, the logic. I mean, I I guess baseball might look at it as it's it's become very regional in its fandom, and maybe it was always that way, but it stands out now with regional networks and things like that. I think baseball fans know all the Minnesota Twins, and you have a certain section that pays very close attention to who's hitting for the Padres, but I think that's shrunk a lot. I think that at one time, baseball was like football, where you knew every single team. I'm case in point of that. Yeah, I used to be able to go through every team and name guys. Yeah, I could have told you relievers on other teams at one point. Yeah. But I definitely can't now. I'm with you the, on this. Unless there's somebody who stands way I'm out. totally with you. I mean, I could have said, oh, yeah, this Steve Klein is the left-handed reliever for the Expo. I used to na- you know? be able to name you every Padres position player. Yeah, right. And I now, couldn't tell you how they hit, but I could tell you who they were. So, so maybe it, in baseball's thinking, that's some of it is just, hey, uh, you know, we don't really know all the players now, that it's become very regional and we want every team to have their guy so they can watch their guy in the All-Star game. But having grown up loving the All-Star game, it was an opportunity for me. Didn't have cable. There wasn't MLB Network. All I had was baseball cards and video games. So there wasn't really an opportunity for me to see Ken Griffey Jr. play, to see Mark McGuire play very often, except for on Sunday baseball. And that was great to see the All-Star game, and here's all these star players who I read about and occasionally see, but not very often. And now I, it might be different for everyone because you can see your favorite player whenever you want. MLB.com, when I was growing up, if you tried to watch a game on MLB.com, it'd be like all blocky and you couldn't be <laughs> like, is that Edgar Renteria? It'd be like a like, scramble just, yeah. signal. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, now you can watch it crystal clear on our TCL broadcast yep. to television up here. Um, yes, beautiful as it is. Do you agree, TV. Dave, or do do you think that every team should have at least one player? I don't. I, I guess I don't have a strong stand either way, but I have absolutely no problem with the way it currently is. And for the point that you guys made, Twins fans are up in arms that Eddie Rosario didn't make it, and he's up for the final well, vote, which he's not going to win because yep. of the competition. Mm-hmm. But does anyone outside of Minnesota? A, know who Eddie Rosario really is, or B, care that he's not an all-star? Jason Stark made the best point. National baseball guy, right? And he said, I am shocked that Brios is the guy. Brios has had a nice first half. He doesn't belong on this team. And Rosario does. Well, he, and it's just that Change your names. You can throw yeah. Eduardo Escobar. But he no, might you, deserve no, to be on right. the team. They don't know. He, you know, leads the world in doubles, but... Does anyone, you know, does your average Padres fan, no. does your average Marlins fan, Yankees fan, name your team? To his point, no. To Collar's point, I think that you would be hard-pressed to go out to the West Coast and say, how about those Twins players? Yeah. They'd be like, who? Yeah, and I can, I could certainly see, you know, maybe you don't buy it, but I can certainly see a, a Twins fan, old or young, doesn't matter, 
you know, Twins might be a terrible team, whatever year it is, but I'm going to watch this game because so and so is in it, and I want to see him, you know, pinch hit in the sixth inning, and maybe they'll hit a ring and double. I wonder if people care about that. I don't know. I think there's enough people that do where it's a baseball. It's probably still worthwhile. Plus, you get to have the conversations that we've had the last two days of this guy got hosed, this guy got am, snubbed. What is he not doing in the game versus this guy? As a baseball fan, I am much more intrigued by the naming of this team than, than the actual, oh, Rosario will make it if a guy pulls out of the game. I don't care about that. I'm much more intrigued by this because it's just more fun to me to debate this whole thing. Yeah, and we get to have the conversation. And I do think it's silly that that they allow these players to vote. If Jason's, if you put Stark's uh, uh, plan, I think that's pretty good. Let's have guys. If you want to have players vote who actually pay attention, but this notion of just, I mean, Collar, as, as he he said, can tell you, we both can. Football locker rooms, nobody should be allowed to vote for anything. No. They pay no attention. No. They don't pay attention. They pay attention themselves. They are not digging into the PFF scores to see what a guy on the Cleveland Browns They're barely paying did. attention at all, they, much they, less what you just w- said. When they look over at the other team, it's usually even just by numbers, unless it's somebody they really know. It'll be like, oh, number 62, their guard, man. you got to watch out for him. Like they, they don't focus on it the same way that fans do. And I don't think they should have to. You well, could of have, course not. You've got other things to do. If you want to do it perfect, you could have three guys in the league office look over the stats and talk about things the weekend they announce it and figure it out that way. I would be very tempted to put together... But then we don't get the conversation. Yeah, I would be very tempted to put together a committee of guys, of, of a very select group of guys like Stark. Because he lives and breathes it. He's not going to screw it up. Sure. You know, have Jason Stark... I don't... Take your picks, you know, Jason Stark, Peter Gammons, just but have a very select group of guys who live and breathe baseball, pick the pick the reserves. And at least then you might debate it, but it would be for a good reason as opposed to to this, which is the commissioner's office has to name guys after the fact because the players put X amount of guys on Um, the, the Minnesota Vikings are expected to have a fantastic 2018 but one national person doesn't think so. We'll discuss that next and play the sound. Don't go anywhere. More Mackie and Judd coming up next. Gentlemen, to the medicine cabinet. On 1500 ESPN. At the Home Depot, we have the tools for you to give the gift of a smarter home with savings on top brands like the Google Hub, a command center for your smart devices that raises the IQ of your entire home. Or the Nest Learning Thermostat that helps you conserve energy and save on your bill. And if you don't know what to get, gift cards are a smart gift no matter what they get. So this year, gift smarter with savings on tools to make your holiday magic. The Home Depot. How doers get more done.